a prayer before study. Ineffable creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Welcome back to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, ready to think through some fascinating medieval theology and writing with you today, and apply it to some of our current situations and struggles. This is episode two of the eight-episode series on one of my favorite authors, the incredible contemplative writer Julian of Norwich. Today we are zeroing in on chapters 10 through 14 of Julian's long text. These chapters revolve around one of Julian's biggest concerns, the gap between our perception of the distance of God and the reality of his presence and goodness that lies beyond our senses and limited minds. Last episode, we spent some time thinking about Julian's vision of Christ on the cross. In this set of chapters, Julian's vision of Christ on the cross becomes even more frighteningly vivid. She sees the contempt, spitting, rejection, and pain that he faces in his passion. Jesus' agonized face changes. One side of his face and then the other is caked with blood. And then the blood vanishes. She is so afraid that she asks God for more light so that she can see more clearly. Bizarrely, she's answered in her reason. That's a quote that if God shows her more, he will be her light. This strange moment is given to Julian to help her understand the limitations of her own vision. When by grace, she writes, we see something of Jesus, we are moved by grace to seek him with great desire. She concludes, So I saw him and sought him, and I had him and lacked him. And this is, and should be, our ordinary undertaking in this life, as I see it. Chapter 10 Julian's original Middle English can help us to parse this passage. Julian uses the word wanted instead of lacked. I had him, and I wanted him. Wanted has a double meaning. Yes, Julian is punning. The first meaning we notice is the most common in our modern English, desired. The second is the lacked of the translation. We still use this sense in an old-fashioned way, 
like, for want of water, the house burned down. So, lack of water, want of water. She carefully draws our attention to Jesus' simultaneous absence and presence in our daily lives, and especially in our suffering. Julian's bleeding crucifix in the dark becomes a strange metaphor of how we live our lives. Julian thus emphasizes two features of our common working in this life, as she calls it. We have God, though often we don't know it. Even when we see Him, it feels like He may not be there. Our desire for Him is generative and fruitful, though not in the ways we may expect. Our judgment is blind. As a result, Julian makes one of her most striking insights. In our present lives, seeking is as valuable as beholding. A mistake could be made here. This statement is not Julian's version of the motivational quote, the journey is as important as the destination. She's not saying that. She acknowledges that God wills us to perceive him and that we will be able to in some limited forms in this life, but not in full until the next. Instead, her discovery is a statement of our capabilities and our createdness here in this present life. The soul search pleases God. And the soul cannot do more, as Julian writes, than to, quote, seek, suffer, and trust. To seek God is our soul's highest calling. Seeking is universal, or in Julian's words, common to all. We are made to seek. Social psychologists write about how babies are born already wired to find faces. So even though their eyesight is super limited and they don't know anything about the world, they emerge into the world looking for faces. We seek. Julian's statement thus becomes a profound battering ram to any system of hierarchy that prioritizes spiritual feelings or experiences of fulfillment over simple seeking. You don't have to receive the stigmata, the marks of Christ's wounds like St. Francis, to be holy. In a more modern context, you don't have to achieve some yogic state of bliss to be blessed. Our current culture of wellness is at risk of worshiping an idealized state of bliss that is attainable here and now. We go back and forth between idealizing that state and idealizing the journey. Julian can help us here. We are made to seek, and seeking is a function of our souls, but it's not the end either. Julian's own series of visions is, in her own admittance, only good so long as it helps others to seek. She refuses any interpretation that makes her special through her spiritual experiences in her illness. I find this very comforting and a statement on the justice and character of God. Comforting for me, because so much of the time, I want more conclusive answers or more settled feelings on what is going on in our world. And to know that seeking is a part of my soul's function is good. And I love the good God that builds that function into our souls so that my wide-eyed three-year-old trying to figure out how God created the world and is the baby in the manger of our nativity scene, 
is just as holy and beloved as Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian of the Middle Ages. The angsty, seeking teenager is on the same plane as Karl Barth or Mother Teresa. The passage that follows this is more difficult for me. It continues along the same themes, our limitations in understanding God's power and love. Julian sees, quote, God in a point. What does this cryptic statement mean? She writes, For I saw truly that God does everything, however small it might be, and that nothing is done by chance, but all by God's prescient wisdom. Chapter 11. God is the doer, Julian declares. He is the still point at the center of the moving universe. There is no chance or happenstance. I don't know what to do with these words. My father-in-law, an excellent man, just died suddenly of a heart attack at age 65. This seems wrong to me. And there are even worse things in the world than the premature death of a good man. Julian does distinguish between sin and the work of God, noting that she cannot see sin, which we'll discuss at length in a few weeks once we get to that passage. Julian's conclusion resonates with me and helps me to think of a way to move forward on this. I contemplated our Lord and waited for what he would show. You might be thinking, Grace, you called that a conclusion. (laughs) And I did. It's not really a conclusion, um, but it is a conclusion to this set of thoughts um, and not a clean conclusion at all. She emphasizes that our knowing and judgment is so far from God's, but what she wants us to know when she says that God is the doer is that his actions are always full of what she calls rightful head in Middle English. The modern translation that I use, College and Walsh, uses rightfulness. I don't think I've ever heard someone use that word. Julian then breaks down the properties of rightfulness. It is right, and it is full. I like that word better than the often slightly chilly word righteousness. It fits. Because at its core, emptiness, the opposite of fullness, and wrongness, the opposite of rightness, are what we worry about in the state of the world. Things feel wrong or hollow or inadequate. That the Lord is the font of fullness and rightness without simplifying or sentimentalizing that certainty. And though we have no clue how it will all end up, is a message I desperately need to hear. And to contemplate the Lord and wait for what he will show seems like a good word. I still have a tough time with this message, but Julian has graciously paired it with her passage on seeking. The Lord has built this seeking into created souls as his gift, and he treasures us in our pursuit of him and his rightfulness. Julian ends this sequence with another striking note on how God sees us in our suffering. She notes with great awe 
that He thanks us for our lives and what we experience. Let me repeat that to let the strangeness sink in. He thanks us. She says, I saw our Lord God as a Lord in his own house who has called all his friends to a splendid feast. Then I did not see him seated anywhere in his own house, but I saw him reign in his house as a king and fill it all of joy and mirth, gladdening and consoling his dear friends with himself, very familiarly and courteously, with wonderful melody and endless love in his own fair, blissful countenance, which glorious countenance fills all heaven full of the joy and bliss of the divinity. Chapter 14. The Middle English says that last bit a little differently. It is the, quote, glorious cheer of the Godhead that fills up all of heaven. Isn't that a delightful phrase? And this is my comfort after reading that last difficult passage. I think of Randy, my father-in-law, at this mirthful feast, enjoying the glorious cheer of the Godhead. He was always excited about a really good dinner party. And God isn't presiding with great solemnity and pomp at the head of the table. He mingles among his dear, worthy guests, blessing them one by one with his presence, and whispering to first one and then another, that over there is his good and faithful servant. Julian marvels that God himself thanks us. He loves us so dearly for who we are and our meager little services truly please him. Again, we see and witness and share Julian's awe that the maker himself is homely with us. What do you think it might mean for God to thank us? This is something I want to think more about. Thanks for listening in to Old Books with Grace. I hope you're enjoying this journey with Julian. Next week, we will be discussing chapters 15 through 26, if you want to read along or read ahead. And of course, if you want to check out anything that I have mentioned today, it's all up on the blog, oldbookswithgrace.com. And I welcome any and all thoughts, either in the comments or through the blog or through oldbookswithgrace at gmail.com. Thanks again.